I'm Haley. And I'm Emma. And welcome to This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes play by play to prove that every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, The Two Noble Kinsmen. bit of a state of dread at the end of last week uh when we, yeah. when we made this choice how'd that how'd that work out for you how'd it go how dare you uh well I would like to start this week with a formal apology to everyone um because this is perhaps the most dramatic turnabout I think I've ever either of us have had in the the storied history of this pod so far mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to the to the degree that like now I'm like okay well do I have to direct the two noble kinsmen? Yeah, it's Shakespeare's birthday this weekend. So I think it's a good time to be apologizing to him and his protege, John Fletcher, for slandering their excellent and very gay play. Happy birthday and death day, my dude. We will celebrate you by talking about what I now believe to be your gayest play. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, this is, I've held this view in my heart all along. And I just feel really vindicated that you came in cold, read it, and came to the same conclusion. Yes. And I have to say that, like, part of this was I have read it, but not since college. And somehow my memory of it was that it was, like, kind of dry or maybe, like, a little bit scattered feeling or, like, I couldn't get into it at the time. You know, just whatever it was. My memory of it was so different than my current reading that I truly could not believe my own eyes. So a giant, giant mea culpa from me to you and also our friend William Shakespeare. And if you are sitting here thinking, well, God, I didn't read The Two Noble Kinsmen because why on earth would I do that? Don't worry, we will provide our usual context and summary (laughs) for you. But I think, I feel that I can safely say our hope is by the end of this episode, you will also be inspired to go read this play. My hope is that by the end of this episode, I will be employed to direct the two double kinsmen. <laughs> I'm going to keep an eye on my phone just to make, to see if the email Thank pops you. up over Thank the course you. of the next, you know, yes. hour. I expect the phone to ring. And also, yeah, we'll take care of you with a summary, but also surprise, we won't have to because we're just reading you the two double kinsmen. <laughs> it's the whole play. It is from- I'm going to read the whole play. <laughs> top to tail, unrelenting homosexuality. The two noble, extremely homosexual kinsmen, where actually the secret is that everyone is gay, and not all just gay the kinsmen. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. What's Everyone's that gay. meme that's like every friend group needs, you know, yeah. maybe even meaner lesbian? That's this play. It's this whole play. It's the whole play. So we're going to have to read it to you uh, right now. Yeah. <laughs> Act one, scene one. <laughs> Enter some queens. We won't do that. <laughs> In all, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, shall we summarize? Yeah. So basically, okay. So it's based on Chaucer, which means nothing to me and probably to any of you, but that is the context everyone always gives. Um, we begin once again, preparing for Theseus and Hippolyta's wedding. Um, it keeps getting delayed this time by the appearance of three sort of mysterious queens who ask for Theseus's help because there's a war over in Thebes where they're from and Antigone, like they need help getting custody of their husband's bodies to bury them. And they plead to Theseus for his help 
as he's processing to his wedding with Hippolyta. Um, Hippolyta and her sister Amelia both like plead for him, like, no, go join this war. Um, and he eventually decides to. Over in Thebes, on the other side of the war, we meet the two noble kinsmen, Archite and Palamon, who are cousins, besties, soldiers who join this war. Theseus wins. The two of them are captured and imprisoned and continue to swear that they're going to be besties forever. Um, but in prison, first Palamon sees Amelia and falls in love with her at first sight. Then Archite sees her too and is like, wait, I love her too. And this causes them to fall out and declare each other enemies slash rivals forever unto death. Um, but then coincidentally, they're separated. Um, Archite is sent into exile and Palamon is moved to a different prison cell for no apparent reason. Um, but <laughs> Archite falls in with some rustics who are putting on some games and tournaments and manages to impress everybody in disguise and get made a member of Amelia's household. Um, meanwhile, the jailer's daughter has fallen in love with Palamon and helps him escape from prison. The two of them meet in the woods, are like, oh good, we can kill each other now. Um, but they get caught before that can happen. Everything comes out and it's decided that they will fight to the death and whoever wins um, will marry Amelia and the other one has to die. Uh, and it falls out unexpectedly. I think, well, we can give away the ending when we get to the ending, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Mm. It's not even that complicated. Like, I, I sort of got started and was like, oh, it's so convoluted. I'm like, it's not that convoluted. It's a pretty straightforward plot. Yeah, uh, two cousins who love each other uh, fall in love with the same woman who's also gay. We'll get to that in a minute. And <laughs> then they decide to battle, but not before they lovingly fondle each other while putting on each other's armor. And then later they fight. Like and there is, to be fair, truly wild subplot then involving the jailer's daughter going mad after oh, yes. she loses track of Palamon and she joins in a May Day thing because Shakespeare <laughs> loves to make Theseus watch am amateur drama. Yeah, um, that's his favorite. It's his favorite. He's like, I don't, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then they cure her madness by getting her original sort of fiance to pretend to be Palamon and have sex with her. And that's how you fix that problem. It's buck wild, frankly, but we'll get to that. There's so much weird sexual energy rattling around this play and so much of it is gay but all of it is horny and insane and so first of all I had a couple of like scholarly questions oh, no. because <laughs> yes um well just because like you said it's based on Chaucer but I couldn't I was like huh what Chaucer what um who knows who cares when I was looking up text for it a couple of different uh you know of the old tried and true find the Shakespeare texts on the internet websites didn't even have it listed as a Shakespeare play and I was like so what's the deal with the co-write like how much do we know about that because I was surprised it's not on the open source Shakespeare uh database for example yeah um I think it's not in the folio I uh -huh. actually should look this up and it's really embarrassing that I don't know it off the top uh, of I mean, my head. Um, but yeah, so it's co-written with John Fletcher who took over um, sort of from Shakespeare as the leading playwright of the then Kingsmen um, after Shakespeare stopped writing and then died. Um, and they collaborated on two plays that we know of at the end of Shakespeare's life, Henry VIII and this. Um, mm. 
And yeah, I mean, there's a lot uh, of kind of writing, especially recently about like what collaboration in this period looked like and kind of what it meant and when it happened. Um, but I think the kind of common interpretation is that it was a bit of like a sort of transitional mentorship move, mm. like welcome to the company. You're going to take my job. Let's write some plays together. Fascinating. Fascinating. I wonder, I don't know enough about Fletcher to have any kind of sense of like where his fingerprints are in this play, you know, yeah. like to be able to sense like what is Fletcher and what is Shakespeare. I mean, I know that there are people who have done the sort of stylometric analysis and have answers mm -hmm. to that. That is not yeah. a field in which I am conversant and uh, <laughs> I could not tell you the answer yeah well I just found it interesting when I was you know trying to find it to read that uh certain you know due to its co-writiness that some uh you know databases don't even list it as a Shakespeare play so I was like what but in a way it kind of aided it, it it's underpinned my sort of like what is this strange buried treasure vibe upon my reread yeah yeah so I'm it is not uh in the first folio so that is mm, probably that's why, why. Mm. left out and as with everything who knows why the question of what ended up in the folio and what didn't is also totally totally well anyways just to dispense with that but obviously it's a late play yes yeah a late maybe, play. maybe his last fascinating that's really interesting because it has some vibe resonances with the other late romances and Definitely. um that was something I thought about a lot particularly in the latter acts yeah, I mean, and I guess the thing that I would say about Fletcher is that what he is famous for is like, I think he coined the term tragicomedy. Huh. Um, he uh, became known for writing these plays that uh, I'm not going to quote it directly, but like he wrote this little kind of preface to one of his plays trying to explain what he was doing. That's like, mm. the point is, things seem like they're going irretrievably badly and everything's going to go to crap. But then at the last minute, it all turns around and ends happily. And mm. that's um, sort of was his kind of go-to style along with mm. uh, Beaumont, who is his main collaborator. Right, right, right. Or most it, famous collaborator. Um, yeah, and so like, I think that energy, which obviously Shakespeare was began working in that style as well, but like, yeah. that's a very Fletcher. Yeah, structure. fascinating. Well, that'll be something that's, an, it'll be interesting to touch back with the ways in which it feels like a romance as we go, you know, or the yeah. ways in which it chimes with, Shakespeare's other plays from the similar period because there were things about it that felt a little bit a little bit Pericles Winter's Tale you know to to, to to me Definitely. yeah yeah mm -hmm. though I mean yeah it's not a tragic comedy I think we can we can give that spoiler no it's not it is a tragedy yeah I guess, I guess? maybe it's I a guess tragic comedy. I mean it still ends in a marriage it and... does yeah I mean, how we haven't spoiled the ending yet. We will spoil the ending when we get to it. But yeah, I don't know. As you were saying that, I was like, well, gosh, is it a tragic comedy? Yeah. Like, actually, if I was a good scholar, I would have Fletcher's little preface to read the definition for you, but I am not. No, sure. no, no. I mean, I, I, I hurled these questions about the background upon you. But yeah, it was just, it's not a play I obviously know very much about because uh, all I've been doing on the pod so far is relentlessly maligning it um, due to a bad memory of uh, one read of it 10 years ago. So I'm so pleased that I was wrong and it's gay as all hell. So we can... I'm happy to dive into the gay now that we've dispensed with the most scholarly that we will be this episode. <laughs> we might bring it back. We might, we might. Um, yeah, let's dive into act one. So um, as stated, this, this act is sort of nicely contained 
as a subplot in a way. It begins with the entrance of these three queens saying, help us with this war. We kind of see a bit of the effects of the war. Some things go on. And then the act ends with them burying their husbands and being like, thanks everybody, peace, we're going home. And uh, that's that. It's like a nice little narrative arc all in itself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because you mentioned in the, in the summary Antigone, like they're looking for their husbands to try to get custody of their husband's bodies. And like, it's literally Antigone, like the guy they're trying to get custody from them, like from is Creon. Yeah, I know. Like, I you like, know, is it the same one? That's why it was so weird to me is I was like, what is happening? It's, you know, that's, it's like inspired by Chaucer, but but Creon is here and so are Theseus and Hippolyta. So it's like, it's a weird sort of thing where to most contemporary theater brains, I feel like you're like, how are people, it's, it's a bizarre crossover where people from Antigone and people from A Midsummer Night's Dream are in the same play. Like, yeah. yeah, that kind of blew my mind actually. And also mm-hmm. like, just to point out, I kind of got fixated on this because I was having a conversation about it with a friend a few days ago, but like there are thinking in practical staging terms, I'm pretty sure in there's this long opening stage direction of a procession, which is another way that it feels super late play, right? Yes. There's these elaborate mask-like set pieces all the time. Um, yeah. I think there's six boy players needed for this opening scene or seven. Wow. There's like a description of, cause we've got the three queens, we've got Amelia and Hippolyta. We have a boy who comes in singing the stage directions mm-hmm. say that um, Theseus is accompanied by two nymphs. That's eight. Wow, I hadn't thought of that in terms of like the performance practices of yeah. the of the. I hadn't thought of that at it's all. It's not. I mean, I don't know what that has to do with the gayness per se, but like, mm-hmm. I was just like, oh my god, that is so many uh, boys and female characters. Well, frankly, scene. you'd reuse all those same boys as the gay Morris dancers later. And frankly, yeah, that you know what I mean? It's like, there's actually a lot of places for, for boy players who can dance in this play. Yes, yeah, which, yeah. I mean, again, it's saying something about the style. Yes. Um, but anyway, we do open, I mean, I just think, like you said, the sort of erotic energy that suffuses the whole play. And also yes. like thematically, we open with the kind of thesis statement of the story, which is a wedding being interrupted by death. Yes, yes. And in terms of the weird erotics, like not to jump over it entirely, just as a little grace note, even though like I would probably cut it in performance, we actually open with a prologue. Oh yeah, of course. Which is spoken by a chorus, like I think an unnamed chorus, um, who uh, comes back and gives an epilogue. And it's a very like straight up prologue in a style unusual for Shakespeare, I would say, which is uh, a chorus addressing the audience on the subject of the play. And then again, looping back in the epilogue, you know, to do the classic chorus thing of like, if the play was bad, uh, forgive us, you know, I mean, the usual, (laughs) the usual kind of thing, but the prologue to Two Noble Kinsmen is the chorus starting with this really strangely erotic um, metaphor about, basically the chorus comes out and is like, a new play is like a virgin. (laughs) And from then on, I was like, hold on, what? (laughs) Like it's being, the entire sense of ritual and like, and spectacle and uh, everything that we're about to witness is literally framed by the play itself as like if a new play is like a virgin then you the audience are about to wed it you know what I mean it literally is like you the audience are about to fuck the play like it's a deeply strange 
moments. Yeah. Speaking of erotic energy. Yeah. And then we move sort of backwards from the wedding night to yes. the marriage, like to the wedding in this first scene, which is, yeah, as I said, interrupted by this plea from the queen setting up this idea that, I mean, mm. we've talked about it so many times, the, the various like forces that compete with the attempts to get married, like the attempts to be heterosexual. And in this one, yes. it's just like death. Death is here to interrupt you. These totally. figure, these like really kind of Mm-hmm. supernatural feeling figures dressed in black yes show up on your wedding day and are like we need you to choose between sex and war again yeah and theseus is trying to choose sex and then hippolyta is like no go to war yeah 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 it's fascinating and it makes good use of the like you know because as we talked about last time in midsummer you know uh, well a little bit the thing about theseus and hippolyta is that she's um in that play, it, it's clear that they've recently been at war, like heard the whole thing of her being, uh, I think, Amazonian, I suppose. She's like, she's a warrior queen. And so, you know, even in the heterosexual love at the very beginning, you're, yeah, it's interesting that she's like, no, go to war. And the whole sense of it is really like, it does feel mystical, like you said, and kind of um, the sense of ritual is just so potent yeah. from the very first moments it really teaches you what kind of play it's going to be, or at least like what um, some of the forces are that are underpinning it. Because once the actual plot kind of takes off, it's interesting because the first scene is very um, stately and ceremonial. And in a way, um, at first I was like, wow, how out of peace with the rest of the, of the, the plot it is. But then the more, the more you go, the more that sense of ritual returns in the latter the latter act and becomes really important but at first I was like wow what's happening like this is not what I remembered it being at all the thing with the queens coming back and yeah there's a lot of ritual kneeling there's yeah and a lot of the thing that we talked about in uh Love's Labor's Lost where it's like these sets of three in this case where like one person gives their speech and then the other person gives their matching speech and then someone we sort of pair off Amelia and Hippolyta with two of the queens so they have this like sort of back and forth and then there's the leader queen as well it's these really yeah stagey Mm. um choreographed Mm -hmm. yes supplications yes exactly courtly and ritualistic it's really strange but also like not in a in an ancient feeling way yeah. Which is interesting because, of course, like it's Greece. So yeah. it, you can sort of feel the, the playwrights, you know, reaching for something that feels like um, that feels ancient even to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's what it feels like to me. I yeah. feel like in the framework of your pitch for this play, this is important <laughs> to highlight early on. Yes. Yeah. Well, it is because one of the reasons besides how gay it is, which obviously, you know, we'll get to. Um, one of the reasons why I was so attracted to it right away was that the the there's so much music. And um, I also listened to, as I've been doing, I listened to an audio version of it while I was preparing. And they they put so much underscore beneath this scene beneath all the supplicating I was like oh that's great like that's what you would do and so then one of the things is like the different kinds of music and ritual that flow throughout the play because obviously once they go into the woods and we meet all the gay Morris dancers that's a very different feeling but in this part of the world it would be a really like um like you're saying like a really choreographic impressive sort of spectacle 
Yeah. Mm. And, and yeah, just almost magic. Yeah. Which I, I don't know. Yeah. I think is important for trying to understand maybe why this play doesn't get done or why people are put off by it is like Mm. how a director maybe could reconcile the disparate tones because we move from this scene into what feels to me like um, a really kind of naturalistic feeling scene between Palamon and Arkite. They're in Thebes sort of lamenting the state of the city and saying, we need to get out of here. Like our uncle's crazy. This is all terrible. We're going to get sort of dishonored by being associated with our family. Mm-hmm. And leave town and then they get word that the city's being attacked and they're like well we owe our loyalty to the city we have to protect the city so actually we're going to stay and fight but as they're sort of like I just picture them like you know walking around like war-torn World War II Naples smoking a cigarette as they like literally to- yeah it's yeah yeah totally it's super all of their scenes that's kind of what I meant about the first scene feeling kind of out of peace with the tone of the rest of the plot is that you don't meet the boys until scene two and then it feels super naturalistic. And a lot of the play is, is very naturalistic feeling two scenes. Yeah. So the, the big sense of the scale of the first scene is like, there's a real scale shift going into the next part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then we do, I mean, we meet, you know, scene two, that's pretty early. We meet our yes. boys and um, they are, like I said, sort of wandering the streets of town, engaged in their favorite activity, which is talking about how much they love each other. <laughs> it reminded me of uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona again, but um, just more so. More, more. Just more more and gayer. Yeah. Something that I found really interesting um, in light of the many conversations we've had, including about Two Gentlemen of Verona, is one of the things that Palamon says as they're sort of debating like can we stay here will this sort of besmirch us as he has this sort of thread through the scene if he has a speech where he's like essentially like I don't need to mimic other people like I will yeah. I don't have to be someone else I can be wholly and purely myself uninfluenced yeah. by others and mm. that felt both that's a tune that kind of changes over the course of this play but we've talked so much about the queerness of the way some of these male friendships, the two halves bleed into one another and sort of yes. become one another. And yes, I just really jumped out at me that at the beginning of the play, that's a sensation that Palamon is like resisting. He's saying like, I'm not susceptible mm. to that. I don't need to shape myself in another person's image. Mm, that is really interesting, especially because their sameness and their, their sameness and connectedness becomes so, and perhaps interchangeability becomes so important to the play as it goes on. It's yeah. really, really interesting. I mean, I found it interesting that uh, Arkite, uh, the actors in the audio version that I listened to said sometimes Arkite and sometimes Arkite, depending on the verse. And it bothered me so much that they mm-hmm. went back and forth between the two. I was like, it's a man's name. You have to choose. I know, but it's Shakespeare's fault. I literally, I, know. So I was like, I don't know what to do. So I texted um, my friend slash mentor who works at the Globe and was like yes. how do you say, how do you it, say it and he was like it's either archite or archite depending mm-hmm. on the verse and I was like that's annoying he's like yeah I say archite and I was like globe approved pronunciation yeah that's- good good we can we can um, lean on him well archite's first line even though they are they are cousins um archite's first line is dear palamon dearer in love than blood 
which I found really interesting too, because like everything that happens calls attention to the fact that they're related, but also they're obsessed with each other in a way that is greater than them being related. Yeah. And I just, I thought it was like such a good encapsulation of that, that his literal first line is like, hi, my guy who I love even more than a relative (laughs) yeah like even more than social custom dictates I should I love you right and that's like literally the introduction yeah so so how do they get to um to Theseus and uh they they do they so they they're having this conversation in a scene about we should leave town we should right for our uncle but then word comes because Theseus has agreed to come and fight Creon. Oh, right. And so they get word, like, the city's being attacked and they, being honorable young gentlemen, decide our duty lies to protect mm-hmm. our city. We can't aban- abandon it now. That's right. And so they go to right. fight. And we will discover later that they get captured. Um, That's right. But first, we sort of flash back to Athens. Yeah, right. Where Theseus is still in the process of kind of leaving or rather, his best friend Pirithus is in the process of leaving <laughs> to join him on the front line. And literally, I don't, what this scene is about is Pirithus is saying goodbye to Hippolyta and Amelia. And is like, I'm going to go fight with Theseus. I'm so excited. Right. He leaves. Hippolyta's like, Pirithus is so excited to be with Theseus. They love each other so much. I would wow. honestly be jealous if not for the fact that I was already married to Theseus. Hey, Amelia, remember when you were in love with a girl? And Amelia says, yeah, I will never be in love with a man. Women love each other more than men ever could. Yep. And then Hippolyta's like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. And that's the end yeah. of the scene. Um, okay, sorry. This is the part where I read you the whole scene. Buckle yeah, up. I was, um, just, no. I was, like, I was like putting it in my notes and I was like, Emma's yep, going to have it. Yep, I don't need I've it. I've got it. I've got it. Well, yeah. So first of all, this connects to all the conversations we've had about the shared queer childhoods, et cetera, yes. et cetera. Like what we're about to talk about is like the thing that we talked about with the, with Leontes and Polixenes in Winter's Tale combined with the, yeah, every conversation. Com- yes. Combined with Rosalind and Celia combined. It's all of yeah. it together. And it's yeah. Yeah. Well, and just before we, before you start reading it, it's like mm-hmm. to pair it with Palamon and Archite, who we've just yes. seen like Amelia describes in the way of the other women characters, mm-hmm. something that is lost, like a friend yes. that she had in childhood. Yes. Whereas we've just get to see, like we get the like sort of um, juxtaposition of seeing Palamon and Archite living that still. Yes, in the present. That's right. But the thing is because Theseus and Pirithus also are still low-key in love with each other. It's literally like this play contains the leontes Polixenes pair if there wasn't a schism between them. Yeah. And the, basically the Amelia and the dead friend uh, thing that I'm about to read is the Titania dead lover thing we talked about last week. And Palamon and Archite are all of those queer childhoods slash adolescences in the present tense. So like there is every, every kind of queer relationship past, present, future exists in this play. It's insane. So Amelia says about Pirithus and Theseus, she says how his longing follows his friend, which was the part of that that I liked the most. Um, and then, like you said, Hippolyta's like, oh yeah, remember your, uh, that, that girl you were in love with? Um, and Amelia says, 
I was acquainted once with a time when I enjoyed a playfellow. You were at wars when she the grave enriched, who made too proud the bed, took leave of the moon, which then looked pale at parting when our count was each 11. So they were 11 years old when she died. Um, queer childhood strikes again. And then a little bit later, Amelia says, you talk of Pirithus and Theseus love. Theirs has more ground as more maturely seasoned, more buckled with strong judgment and their needs, the one of the other may be said to water their intertangled roots of love. But I and she I sigh and spoke of were things innocent, loved for we did, and like the elements that know not what or why, yet do affect rare issues by their operance, our souls did so to one another. And then Hippolyta literally says, you're out of breath. And this high-speeded pace is but to say that you shall never, like the maid Flavina, love any that's called man. And then Amelia says, I'm sure I shall not. That's, it's lit she's literally just gay. I have to read a part that you just skipped over. Okay, go, so go, go. Sensual. So she says, you know, we know not why you do affect right issues by our operants. Our souls did so one another. What she liked was then of me approved, but not condemned. No more arraignment. That flower I would pluck and put between my breasts. Oh, yeah. then but beginning to swell about the blossoms, she would long till she had such another and commit it to the in like innocent cradle where Phoenix like they died in perfume. Jesus Christ. It's like, yeah, I mean, not, it's just, it's like, it's not just the sort of like, it's, it's, it's erotic. Yeah, it's intensely erotic. And also then Hippolyta, so, okay. So the way she that this says scene- another one, she says, yeah, true love between maid and maid may be more than in the sex individual. It's, it's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. It's literally just like, oh, so you're gay? Yeah, super gay. And then Hippolyta says, but sure, my sister, if I were ripe for your persuasion, you have said enough to shake me from the arm of the all noble Theseus for whose fortunes I will now, I will now in and kneel with great assurance that we, more than his Pirithus, possess the high throne in his heart. And then the last line of the scene is Amelia says, I am not against your faith yet I continue mine. It's, it's literally just Hippolyta going, listen, girl, if I were by, this would have done it. You know? Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. That's insane. That's the whole scene. That's the whole scene. Also that speech, I mean, Amelia's speech is beautiful. Obviously yes. the only reason people don't use that in weddings is because it's two women. Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's literally insane. And it's such a, we just have to sort of like bask in the madness of it for a minute because it's so explicitly textually gay. A, I couldn't believe it when I read it. And B, I was like, okay, because what's about to happen, which you already summarized, so we're going to get to it in a sec, but what's about to happen is both of the boys are going to fall in love with Amelia from a distance. And Shakespeare slash our homeboy Fletcher, didn't have to make her textually gay first, but they did. And so the whole play is overhung with this question of what does it mean in terms of like the eventual end, the heterosexual, the promise, the fulfillment of whatever, what does it mean for these two young men who are unbelievably gay for each other to fall in love with this gay woman? Like, it's literally just like, what does it mean to fall in love with a woman who doesn't love men? Yeah. And I think that like, will return to this because yeah. Shakespeare, if, you know, I'm sure like if, if you summarize this play to me and told me that's what happens, I'd be like, oh, mm. so the playwright is either doing a thing where then she learns the error of her ways 
or it just kind of never comes up, but it's like Shakespeare does not let us forget that Amelia is not interested. Yes. She stays not interested. It's really interesting. I mean, the whole thing is crazy. And the thing is, and not only is that this scene that we just quoted extraordinary for a lot of reasons, it's structurally extraordinary because of what the plot is and because of how early it exists in the play. It's just like, like, this isn't a revelation. Like this is something it's important for us to know about Amelia before the plot happens to her. That's so true. Yeah. And also again, it comes in, it is the third in this trilogy of meet Palamon and Archite, Mm -hmm. best friends, beloveds, meet (laughs) Pirithus and Theseus, best mm-hmm. friends, beloveds, their entire lives, they've spent their lives together. And yes. then meet Amelia who had this and lost it. Yes. Yes. And yeah. feels that she will never replace it with, even with a different kind of love. Because that's the thing, right, about the version that, of this yeah. that we've talked about with men, yeah. is that the tension and the conflict and the argument is, yeah. yes, you will miss this thing you had, but you'll have a different mm-hmm. thing that is equally good and maybe better in some ways yeah whereas Amelia's argument is I've never found anything that's even close to the same and again they didn't have to put the explicit clarification in the scene and they did Hippolyta literally asks literally asks for clarification so what you're telling me is that you're never going to be you're never going to fall in love with a man and Amelia's like yeah that's right I never am yeah, it's not about, oh, you, you know, the love you experience in youth is different from when you're older. It's not about like people from your, from our home country are better. And now we're in a foreign country and it's weird. It's like, I was in love with a woman and that was preferable. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. It's fascinating. And so, you know, what does it mean for a couple of gay boys to fall in love with a lesbian? That's the problem of two noble kinsmen. Join us as we move into <laughs> act two. I mean, yeah, like, but yeah, really that's it. Out. I mean, yeah, Truly. it. No. Um, it's a layer cake of gay, this play. It is. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I just have to like, you know, we've talked about it so much. It's just reiterating the idea that like in Shakespeare for women, queerness yeah. is of, a ch- of your childhood and something yeah. that happens when you're young. And yeah. for men, there are still models in Pyrrhus Pyr- and Theseus mm-hmm. of maybe how that kind of love can endure yes. into adulthood and into something that sustains but, and yet, and yet, also though, uh, Hippolyta, Theseus's wife, is explicitly jealous. Yeah. Well, she. Yeah, she ends the scene being like, "I'll rest assured, I'm the one who's married to him." And we have begun with like, here, this and Theseus have to go off to war to kind of be mm-hmm. together. Exactly. That's the so. Space. But I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's it as well. It's like, I'm, you know, we talked about it in Henry Four, and we'll talk yes. about it in more history plays in the future. Yeah. That, like that's the space that exists for men and why they can have that eroticism even in adulthood. Well, that's something that will take us that I want to return to as we go through this, because why, uh, why you fight, why you fighting boys? Yeah. Why, you know what I'm saying? Okay. So I think that could take us into act three. I mean, basically that's yeah. like what happens at this act. So these well, did war. we jump back to what about act two? Are we in Act oh, Two? Sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, you meant Act Two. Yeah, okay. Good. I misread. I was I, I <laughs> oh, scrolled good. to Act Two in my notes and decided that's what we were on right now. No, good. yeah, but so Act One, one uh, Act One ends. Theseus yeah. comes back. He's won the war. Yeah. He, the the sort of grievously wounded bodies of Archite and mm. Palamon get brought in, and Theseus <laughs> demonstrates his uh, preferences by talking <laughs> about how incredible they are and how much he noticed them in battle and how amazing and how hot they looked. And decides yes. that he can't bear to let them die. So they'll be imprisoned. 
and they sort of get carted away and the queens collect their husband's bodies and go and we end that little Mm -hmm. subplot right right um and then pick up in act two with palma and archite in prison together in prison together hanging out (laughs) they can they can keep up with their favorite pastime they sit lamenting all the things they're not going to be able to do now that they're in prison Mm -hmm. um but quickly transition into I mean basically Archie opens it with like it's such a shame we'll never get married at least we have each other literally okay it's just again again sorry buckle in for a full quoting we're just gonna drown you in (laughs) in gay text this time I'm so sorry so it starts with like you said them you know lamenting all the stuff they're never gonna do but speaking of that like military the the erotics of military space you know what I mean Palamon has the line oh never shall we two exercise like twins of honor our arms again and feel our fiery horses like proud seas under us which is a very hotspur uh sentence you know we've been here before but I was um, actually there's an odd scholar called Karen Raber who has a really great mm. article about the sort of erotics of horsemanship yeah and I mean yeah it's sort of you 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 can imagine where that goes come let me taste my horse um but then later in this scene (laughs) hashtag let me taste my horse um Um, so yeah, so basically they're like, isn't it great that we have each other? Arkady said, Arkady, Arkady, whatever. The, that guy, uh, says, whilst Palamon is with me, let me perish if I think this is our prison. A little bit later, he says, and here being thus together, we are an endless mind to one another. We are one another's wife, ever begetting new births of love. We are father, friends, acquaintance. We are in one another families. I am your heir and you are mine. Yeah. I quoted that. I pulled that as well. I mean, that's, it's, it, it reminds me of, I mean, I thought of Richard II. Yes, of course. Where, yes. you know, the brain, my brain will prove the father to my soul and still mm-hmm. beget the kingdom of something thoughts. Um, yep. The idea of, you know, when you're alone, you kind of make do with what you have. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is, I, I mean, he says we are one another's wife. Listen, so. you guys, he says we're one another's wife. Okay. I don't, and- I don't know how to gloss that. I mean, he says we're everything. We're everything to each other. Yeah, yeah. You're my whole family. Yeah, and you're and my, I'm married to you. <laughs> you're and like you're my heir. You're my future. Yeah. You are like the thing that gives me futurity. Like, it's everything. Which is, as we've talked about so many times in this podcast, in terms of the need for futurity, that is literally the entire purpose of heterosexuality. Right. So if you and don't like, need, if you don't need it. You're a free gay, baby. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so. no, but it is true. So I wanted, I pulled this part, a quote a little later mm-hmm. in the scene along mm-hmm. those lines. He, I think this is still Archite says, yeah. are we at liberty, a wife might too. part us lawfully or business, quarrels consume us, envy of evil, of ill men crave our acquaintance. I might sicken cousin where you should never know it. And so perish mm-hmm. without your noble hand to close mine eyes or prayer to the gods. Which is help. It's yeah, I pulled that I too. Mean, it's so I tender. mean, but like uh, to zoom in on the wife part really quick, like the yeah. idea that like that's yeah, yeah, your wife is supposed to part you. That's supposed to be the point, but they've come all the way around from mm-hmm. at the beginning of the scene saying it's a bummer, we'll never get married. To be like, actually, now that I think about it, it's way know, better. <laughs> it's just the idea that a wife lawfully might part mm-hmm. us. That it's like, yeah, I recognize that that would be allowed, mm-hmm. but it would be so terrible. Yeah. And then I might have to live a life apart from you and die like in another country and die without your hands on my eyes. It's literally, 
I was just like, hold the phone. Well, and I just, in a play that opens <sighs> with wives yeah. asking yes. for permission to bury yes. their husband's bodies. Yes. That is, that it gets set up for yes. an entire scene as this incredible and essential act of devotion and loyalty and love and duty. Exactly. And the thing is, like we, like you said before, like, this is why it's 10 times two gentlemen of Verona, because it's the thing of like, we love each other as youths. We know the natural order is that then we're supposed to grow up and get married. And literally it is like, these are the boys from two gentlemen. If they were like, yeah, but instead of that, what if we just stayed in love forever? Like, what if? And it's, and it's, and it's I mean, it's a version as well of the thing that the gentlemen of Love's Labor's Lost try to do. It's yeah. like, what if we find a space where we don't have to deal with all that stuff. But again, unlike them, for these two, it's like, because we'll just care about each other. Yeah, it's insane. A little bit later in the same conversation, Palamon says, is there a record of any two that loved better than we do, Archite? And he says, sure, there cannot. And then of course, like in a classic, Palamon says, I do not think it possible. Our friendship should ever leave us. And then Archite says, till our deaths, it cannot. And then, and then he says, and after death, our spirits shall be led to those that love eternally. It's just like, so of course they spend a second being like, yeah, we're in love. We'll be in love in the afterlife. We'll die together. We're, we'll be in love for all time. And then of course it's like, enter the complication. Yeah, well, there's also this really, just a really cute, stupid moment where Palamon says, shall I say more? I would hear you still. You shall. Like, it's just like, keep talking. I love to hear you talk. It's, it's like, I was reading it and I was like, hold on. Like, what is the tone? Like, it's so, it's so romantic. Like, yeah, well, I'm glad you said that because that's actually what I was just about to say. So I've seen this play once. Okay. And it was mediocre. Okay. And for reasons that I shouldn't get into on a public podcast. Um, but one of the things that really ruined this scene was mm. you could feel like they played up this irony that you're tapping yes. into of like, we'll be friends forever, enter the conversation. Yes. And you know, yes. you could just feel neither, I mean, don't want to speculate about how these artists felt about the queer. Yeah reading of this scene but instead of doing that they leaned into the buffoonery and the comedy of how obviously like mm-hmm. just obviously telegraphing this is all going yeah. to go wrong and this is all in over- two seconds yeah yeah mm-hmm. um which obviously is a huge mistake it's but a huge mistake is one of the ways in which this play gets um underrated i yeah. guess is the word yeah. i'm looking for like people read it and are like well this is goofy and kind of yeah. um yeah, like play backwards. Like don't let the don't let the characters live in the reality of the feelings they're feeling in that moment. Them not knowing it's I, there's dramatic irony at work here, and that it's all about to blow up in their faces. Yes, exactly. And the thing is, it's just like why would you? The really really tender stuff in Shakespeare is actually in practice sometimes really difficult because people it's actually you know considering that Shakespeare, I feel like why everybody thinks we're drawn to it is the big full-bodied sort of full-throated expressions of emotion it's actually astonishing how much everyone's first impulse is to run yeah you know it's in in even actors who do want it and do love it I've never directed this play obviously although I will uh, momentarily <laughs> as soon as anyone calls me but um in other you know in other shows obviously I've had the experience of like you get to something like f- like full-bodied and tender in a way that like feels like a lot for us and it takes like an extraordinary amount of courage to actually sit in it and not run and like 
it's really, it's really interesting. I would be fascinated to feel what it feels like to actually let this just be what it is. Yeah. I mean, and I think that it's not wrong to say that part of probably the reason that this play has not gotten the attention that I do think it deserves. I do think mm-hmm. it's a good play I is do too. because it's queer and because yeah. there's no way to play this scene. If you don't let Palmon and Arkite be in love with each other. Yeah. And also like, it's fascinating in a way. Cause of course I'm thinking back to the conversation we had with Midsummer last time. And mm-hmm. also just like so many of the conversations we've had about like, this is a kind of queering that has been done to this before. This is a kind of like, which is of course also worthy, but like people, people make queer storytelling where it sometimes isn't in lots of places in Shakespeare. And then this exists. So part of this disorientation that I was feeling was like, hold on, why would you like, why would you do that and not this? Yeah. Why are you turning Helena into a man Yeah. instead of just doing two noble kinsmen? Doing two noble kinsmen. Yeah. So, you know, and yeah, I don't know. I found that I found that really interesting. But like the the tonal, the tonal quote, the sincerity of it is really sincere. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, and then it does blow up in their faces. Amelia enters, and I want to like highlight the conversation that they me too see from her because she immediately goes into. I was like, we get she enters talking about Narcissus, and we get yeah. like all this language about you know like a man being in love with himself and like just thinking about these ideas of the mirrored selves and the single self and. Um, a quote they sort of misquote I think it's Bacon Francis mm. Bacon who has a thing about how true friends are one soul in two bodies and Arkite yes. says they are two souls in two bodies which like a lot of scholarship mm. around this play really zeroes in on in this mm. idea of like this is this subtle hint that Palamon and Arkite are mm. not as unified as they sort of think they are and don't mm. understand and emblematize true friendship in the way that they think they do Mm, mm -hmm. um which is interesting but also like yeah I just think it's interesting to like that that gets so deliberately juxtaposed with Narcissus and the idea of loving like the image of yourself and a version of yourself yeah and also like I think we'll talk about this maybe more I'll put a pin in this for act three or four Mm -hmm. they are really different and yes they are actually their characterization is like remarkably distinct and well drawn yeah yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I guess we can put a pin in it and come back later because it becomes increasingly important, I suppose, as the play goes on, yeah. ha- the ways in which they're different. But yeah, it's fascinating. And yeah, the narcissist thing I found I found interesting too. I mean, I feel like we should also do a tiny bit of quoting of the conversation that's happening because, so they're in prison. The logistics of this is they're in prison. They're looking out a window and into the garden out their window uh, comes Amelia and um, a woman, an unnamed woman, and a gentlewoman. And uh, the thing that they overhear while they are about to fall in love at first sight with Amelia is her absolutely like flirting her tits off with this random woman. Yeah, I'd be. Do you have parts? Because I was going to read the end of the scene. So go, you go for it first, and then I'll cut it off. I don't know what you have. I have. uh, I'm wondrous, Mary Harded. I could laugh now. Yeah, I have, well, yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so Amelia is sort of toward the end of this discussion. It's just, she's absolutely just like going for it, flirting with this chick in a rose garden. And she says, I'm one just merry hearted. I could laugh now. And the woman says, I could lie down, I'm sure. And Amelia says, and take one with you. And the woman says, that's as we bargain, madam. And Amelia says, well, agree then. <laughs> it's literally like, do you want to go, do you want to go inside? Want to go? Yeah. 
And then they just go inside and have sex, I guess. Yup. <laughs> but it's just like, remember how we were like, wow, this is crazy. How explicit the, the writing is at the end of act one with Amelia being like, just so everyone knows I'm gay. And then these two boys who have just spent this entire scene, like declaring their love for each other, look out the window at a woman about to have sex with another woman and they're like wow how hot what yeah and so it's insane and then basically what ensues is like a speed run of the entire plot of Mm. two gentlemen verona where (laughs) they basically get in this really dumb argument that's like i love her no i love her well i saw her first how dare you how and you know i think under it all is this thread of like how dare you love someone else? Yes. Yeah. And you know, uh, like you, it's so brilliant that you said a speed run of two gentlemen. That's exactly what it is down to this thing of, are we the same person or are we two different people? That's a big part of it. Arkite at one point says he's, he's, um, in his argument to be like, why shouldn't I love who you love? Arkite says, am not I liable to those affections, those joys, griefs, angers, fears, my friends shall suffer. Yeah. And then Palamon says, you may be. And then Arkite says, why then would you deal so cunningly, so strangely, so unlike a noble kinsman to love alone? Right. Like we have to love together. So that either means we have to love the same person or love each other. Yes. And it blew my mind because A, hilarious title mic drop, but also B, the fact that what the title actually means is to be a noble kinsman is to be connected in your love. Yes. To be not free to love alone. And it's such an incredible articulation of this problem we've been tracing throughout all these plays. Yeah. And I think this is, it's great that we've kind of done this one. I feel like this is the last of the plays that's really fixated on this idea. Mm. Kind of talked about all the other ones. Yeah. And that that is like the crux of the problem is that like, if we're going to do everything together, we right. have to love together. So how? Yeah. How? And I think, you know, in Two Gentlemen of Verona, like to go from oh, maybe the first play to maybe the last play, still yes. fixated on this problem is incredible. That's what amazing. I hadn't thought of that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, wow. you know, in Two Gentlemen, he's sort of, you know, we have the two women. There's other options. There's the kind yeah. of, the, the, the question gets muddied because it's like okay well we'll give you an outlet for this and you can all kind of form a little foursome together right in this play it's like well we'll take away the other option and say actually when you really break it down there's only two choices to maintain this friendship yeah to love the same person or to love each other yes and what's so insane about the triangle is that the person they love is also gay. That's what's yes. so crazy is like, and then the woman they fall in love with doesn't like men. Well, it's I mean, crazy. And what that yeah. does is, you know, it, it makes her, I don't think Amelia is an irrelevant character. I think Amelia is actually no. a great and interesting character, but she is irrelevant to the love story. Exactly. It does not matter what her, her. view no. is, which is implicit in so many Shakespeare plays, of course. It's like, I mean, the really troubling ending of Two Gentlemen of Verona, yeah. where it's like, it doesn't matter whether Sylvia is okay yeah. with being given away to the man she was raped by almost or not, because yeah. we don't care. In this, it's Shakespeare is just saying like, no, Amelia also doesn't care. Yeah. They yeah. don't need to, they don't need to care about her view because her view is she doesn't 
want either of them. Right. Exactly. And it's just like the thing that you just set up so well of like your two options are to love the same thing or to love each other. And what the play has set up explicitly, even though it didn't have to, was that the the love the love the same thing option isn't even really a real one because she's does doesn't love you back and we know that going in they don't but we do but also i think that emphasizes that because it's like just yeah. pick someone exactly it's random it doesn't matter and- she, it doesn't matter how she feels it matters how the two of you can feel about each other through her right and the thing is like so i know what we have to move into act 3 but before we do it's like even the, there's a couple of little things that super astonished me as the, their fixation on Amelia and her kind of awareness of them both grow. Even the desire that supposedly coded straight in this play is gay. It's insane. Yeah. This, well, this you, is, yeah. yeah. No, at the end of act two. Yes. When Arkite in disguise. Yes. He gets, so as I said before, they decide for some reason, who cares? Arkite is going to get banished and go away. And he decides mm-hmm. instead he's going to stick around and in disguise enter sort of like Orlando, like a wrestling contest. Yeah. In order to impress Amelia. And it works. Yeah. And yeah. he, Theseus, is like, who is that incredibly hot young man? Bring him yep. here. And yep. basically like aggressively flirts with Archite and then makes him a member of Amelia's household. And yes. you, everyone's sort of standing around admiring him. For it's the insane. quote that you're about to read. Well, I was going to do two because it goes both ways. There's one where Palamon is talking about Amelia when they're still looking at her. And oh, Pal- sorry. It's one and one. No, well, I have both. Palamon says of her, were I at liberty, I would do things of such a virtuous greatness that this lady, this blushing virgin, should take manhood to her and seek to ravish me. That's insane. So Pal- let's just let- Listen, like, Palamon's a bottom and there's nothing wrong with that. He is, but also like even looking at a woman, he's like, what would be great is if if that girl was so impressed by me that she would just top me. <laughs> and then Amelia of Archite in the scene that you just set up says, he's <laughs> looking at him and she says, believe his mother was a wondrous handsome woman. His face methinks goes that way. <laughs> so like- Palamon looking at her is like, I really wish that woman would love me like a man. And then Amelia looking at Archite is like, I don't know. He's pretty like a woman. (laughs) Yeah, it's incredible. And then I just have to add that as they're sort of all leaving, Theseus says to Amelia, sister, beshrew my heart. You have a servant that if I were a woman would be master, but you are wise. And Amelia says, I hope too wise for that, sir. Incredible. So basically, like, it's an absolute, like, smorgasbord of weird queer desire in, like, all (laughs) senses. Like, it's everybody, everybody hot for everyone. It's just absolutely insane. But, like, regardless of gender, it's so confused. It's incredible. Yeah. And so then we move into Act Three. Yeah. Um, Where, I mean, basically, they meet up again. well, the jailer's daughter kind of, yeah. she has this, I mean, she, we, I guess we'll do a little sidebar with her because I do yes. think she's relevant, but she basically she has this series of structurally very weird solo scenes Incredible. where she comes in and gives these long, great speeches yeah. um, about her plans and what she's going to do and how she's falling in love with Palamon. And right. she decides to free Palamon mm-hmm. and hope that that will make him fall in love with her and they can run off together. Um, and she does this. Mm-hmm. and is very dismayed when he doesn't seem interested in her at all she's like why yeah. won't he kiss me 
You won't even like look at me. This is so upsetting. Um, and as Palamon is sort of wandering off in the woods, he and Arkite run into each other right. and immediately are like, let's fight to the death. Um, and then Arkite's like, no, you look really tired and hungry. I'm going to bring you some food and a sword and some snacks and we'll get those chains off you and we'll just like relax a little bit and then we'll fight. Then we'll fight to the death. <laughs> then we'll fight to the death after that. Um, and that's pretty much what happens. I mean, and then they kind of get discovered in the process of this and uh, the yes. fight to the death, the proper fight to the death gets set up. But the kind of, the, the, the kinsman in the woods is this act. Kinsman in the woods act is act three, right. And you're right that like, so what's happened is Archite finds his way uh, in disguise to those other guys. Like you just set up, Palamon is the one who has stayed in prison, but then gets freed by the jailer's daughter, runs through the woods. So that's how they end up there. Yeah. And yeah, something else just as a tiny, we'll come back to her, but a tiny grace note I just thought of is like, the jailer's daughter has these great monologues where she tells the audience about how she and Palamon have had all these lovely conversations and he's been really nice to her and she has this fat crush on him and she's going to let him free, even though her dad, the jailer, might get in trouble. And it's so interesting that like none of those scenes are in the play, obviously. Like there's not a conversation between Palamon and her in the play. I mean, the question of what is not in this play is really interesting, especially yes. given that it's um, like this sort of pseudo Greek setting. It's like all the yeah. battles are off stage. Yeah, completely. Completely. All the, almost all the violence is off stage, except for when Palamon and Archite fight each other in yes. this act. And in this in act. act. Yeah. And so yeah. that actually tied in really well. Good job, us. Um, but I find that we get tons mm-hmm. of sort of faux Greek style. You'll never yeah. guess what happened. Oh, scene that would have been really cool to watch. Not here. And but it's also like it reminded me the omission of the of whatever the interaction was between Palamon and the jailer's daughter is great because it reminded me of how we talked about again in Two Gentlemen of like the the courtship that isn't shown, the courtship yeah. that isn't present. It's like it's all about the boys and whatever she imagined, like whatever was him being polite to her or manipulating her in order to get out, whatever the story is, it doesn't matter at all. The point is she gets him free and now here he is. So I loved the like you said, they're like, let me bring you a sandwich. Let's file those chains off you. Then later we'll fight to the death. And they literally can't not compliment each other. Like they're mortal enemies at this point and they still give way to being like, you're so brave. You're so noble. This is so nice of you. If I didn't hate you, I'd love you. Okay. We ha- I mean, we have to do some of the armor scene. Oh, do you want right? to skip to that already? Oh, well, uh, well, so what happens before that? Cause that's act three, right? Yeah. Yeah. But first, yeah, okay. so they, I mean, they just, there's, they have a couple scenes subsequently. Right. I mean, yeah, well, I guess it's, it's a lot of the same kind of stuff of just like, they yeah. see each other, they are in love with each other. I mean, I think it's just, they have this whole exchange where they talk about, they're like sitting around talking about all the girls that they've slept with. It's like <laughs> when? Yeah, guys, really. Guys. And like sort of teasing each other. Um, and Again, I mean, it just, I don't know. I think I just really get stuck on it's, it's another one of the exchanges that feels really naturalistic. Yes. And really, yes. again, just showcases the two of them just for, like from a craft perspective. It's like, they are not a generic, like Mm-mm. I couldn't, I think if you gave me a speech by Valentine and Proteus, unless yeah. I knew when it was, yeah. what was happening, I couldn't really tell them apart, but like, no. um, Palamon and Archite have really distinct personalities 
Yeah, they do. I mean, so how would we characterize them? I mean, Palamon gets spoken about as like melancholy and a little bit darker a lot. Yeah, and I think this is when you really, in these exchanges, like Arkite, partly because he's in this sort of superior position in terms of mm-hmm. not having just escaped from prison, yeah. he's really the jokey chipper one. He's the one who's like, I'll get you some armor. We're going to do this right. Like, mm-hmm. be cheerful. This is going to be great. Um, yeah. He's the sort of, he's the upbeat. Yeah, he's upbeat and sort of sassy and like a little bit more, um, yeah, yeah, a little bit, has a little bit more humor, but they're both like very tender. Yeah, Yeah. and Palamon is a little bit more, yeah, melancholic and kind of like, um, but even still, none, like there's no, it's not even barbed. I wonder, like, it doesn't even feel like there's, the enmity feels, um, put on it feels yeah. like court, courtly in a strange way you know what I mean it's like I do it feels uh stated but not embodied yeah well I think that's what's so striking about again it's like they're barely in each other's company before they are complimenting each other they embrace they sit around and joke about the girls they slept with like it's like the the, the veneer is swept yeah. away so readily when it's like yeah. oh well let's be friends for now while I you know make sure you have a snack um and I guess it also just like emphasizes much like, again, with Proteus and Valentine, it's like mm. the question of who they love is to be settled between the two of them, not between yes. either of them and the woman. Of course, question. of course. Because there's no yeah. wooing. There's no wooing in the play. There's no wooing. And like, even like, again, like even unlike two gents, like there's no attempted rape or kidnapping. Like neither of them even make an effort to make it about Amelia between the two of them to kind of like physically take her from the other it's like no the person I have to deal with this about is you is you and which is why um maybe to take us into the armor scene I want to bring back the thing that you were talking about in terms of like martial space is the space where men can be close to each other in like a physical erotic way and this is the thing of like this is the Hotspur thing and also this is Theseus and Perithus going off to fight together and Hippolytus jealous like so these guys are no longer in a war but they've seen a girl they both love her now here we are in the woods and it's like we're hanging out under a tree eating a sandwich and talking about the girls we've slept with fine but like, would we rather be erotically buckling each other's armor on as a weird last rite before we, like, fight to the death for no reason? Like, what is that about? Yeah. So I know what you may be thinking, listener. You're like, there's lots of scenes in Shakespeare. There's that scene in Macbeth where they buckle on Macbeth's armor. There's that not scene like in this. Julius Caesar where they, like, <laughs> it is not like this. Literally, it is one by one at length a sort of step-by-step description in the dialogue so it's making it very clear like speaking of embedded stage directions you know the way that despite the fact that there's not a lot of stage directions usually in place of this period you put it in the dialogue to give (laughs) the kind of both the listener who might not be able to see what's happening and also the actor hints about what needs to be going on physically what needs to be going on physically is an incredibly slow slow detailed and piece by piece putting on first of one set of armor and then entirely separately at the same pace of the The second set of armor I can only imagine this scene takes several minutes yes performance yes and literally artistic directors of the world let me at it because I mean like genuinely 
Oh, my, well, the thing, I mean, like the text is the pitch, but the thing is, like you said, the key is the slow, is how slow it is. Because like I said, they're hanging out. And even before the, even before they're actually physically doing it, there's this hilariously genteel, like soft exchange where they have all this armor and they're like, you pick first. No, no, you, no, you. <laughs> yeah, no, you please go first. Okay. Well you go. And so, you know, um, whichever one of them is like, okay, we'll say, okay, then I'll take this one. And then I think it's Arkite who says that's mine then. And then Arkite. So the part that I pulled would, we could do the whole thing. This is the tone. Uh, Arkite says, I'll arm you first. And Palamon says, do. And then the stage direction that I have is Arkite begins arming him. And Palamon says, pray, pray thee, tell me, cousin, where gots thou this good armor? Arkite says, tis the Duke's. And to say true, I stole it. Do I pinch you? Palamon says, no. And Arkite says, not too heavy. And Palamon says, I have worn a lighter, but I shall make it serve. And then Arkite says, I'll buckle it close. And then there's like, like the whole thing is like, they're in the middle of sentences. And then they're like, is that too tight? No, it's fine. Like, it's like, and the thing is to imagine how you would have to physically do this. Like one of the actors is behind the other. Like, I mean, the thing is like, they're, well, they're armor. You're in front, you're it, behind, you're between the legs. Like you're, you're everywhere. everywhere. No, it's and insane. And then it happens twice. This is the thing, dude. And like, if it's all of the armor, you're doing breastplates, you're doing arms, you're doing legs, someone's kneeling, someone's standing. I mean, come on. It's insane. There's a moment where Palamon says, good cousin thrust the buckle through far enough and I left my effing body, okay? I was just like, goodbye. Like, I know I keep saying it because like, obviously once you've armed one of them, you have to arm the other one, but it's like the fact that you go twice. through this entire slow process and then you do it a second time at the same pace. The tension of this scene. Let us, I mean, I just, like, I can't imagine how much fun it would be to do, but it's just like, it's two guys alone and like, if two gays alone in the woods softly buckle each other's armor on while making intense eye contact for like 15 minutes, like everyone is absolutely heaving by the end. I mean, like you, me, the audience, the act, all of us heaving it's 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 I mean again I just you sort of realize like of course this play could never make a case for itself in any context where people could not commit to what this scene clearly is come on guys let it be but I mean even just generally like speaking of like you know historically like speaking I mean speaking of now the number of places I could imagine going you know forward-thinking liberal well-intended theaters who would let this scene be erotic Yeah, and yeah. not try to provoke like laughter at yes what the t- they are doing to each other and how long yeah. it takes and the way yeah. they keep kind of checking in with each other. Like I can't think of I would be my mind would be blown. I would be stunned to see even again like a, know. you know at the Globe or the RSC or wherever. I don't think they commit yeah. to it. I don't think they do it. I know this is the thing, man. This is this is the thing. If you actually let it be as hot as it is people would not be able to control themselves. Like people would be, people would literally lose their I mean, some straight up Lord of the Rings bullshit here. Like, oh, like the most, the most good cousin. Thrust the buckle through. (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) they finally finish arming and they finally get to fight. 
And they're very quickly interrupted yes. by the hunting party coming through and Arkite's like, shit, shit, shit. I forgot they're in this area. And Palamon's like, fuck it, man. Let's just do it. We're going to die here today one way or another. And yeah. so they keep fighting. And again, right. this is the first fighting we've gotten to see. Yeah. And it's, of course, very intimate. And so yeah. then the hunting party of Theseus and Hippolyta and Pirithus and everybody, like the royal, you know, the court people yeah. come in and find them. And something that really struck me at the end here is that once again, this motif from the very beginning of women kneeling for mercy. Two women and Pirithus. And Pirithus the third queen. Yes, I saw that too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because of course, Amelia and Hippolyta kneel to beg Theseus for mercy to not kill them because they're both supposed to be banished and not present and et cetera. And then Pirithus yeah. also kneels. Yeah. And yeah, they basically, I mean, they do the classic thing where they're like, guess what? I'm your traitor prisoner. Kill me if you want to. And Theseus yeah. is like, I will. And then <laughs> from the pleading, I mean, they have this really interesting sort of conversation where the two of them are like, we're fighting over Amelia and we will not stop. And everyone kind of tries to propose other solutions. They're like, could we just like banish you both? Could we banish no. you both to different places? And they're like, no, we will never no. stop fighting over this even if there's no chance of either of us having her neither no. of us will ever stop and so Theseus is like well I mean logically then how about you fight and either Amelia picks one of you and the right. other one dies and Amelia's like absolutely fucking not will I do that and Amelia's also like her excuse is so flimsy and amazing she's like I could never choose they're both so perfect mm. <laughs> Which, yeah. yeah she elaborates on those feelings in act four so she does we'll get into that but yeah in the yeah. moment she's just like no absolutely not and he's like okay then fight to the death since that's what is clearly going to be the outcome no matter what yeah yeah and they're both yeah. like and then as soon as as soon as like done dust degree the two of them are like great we're friends till then Yes, exactly. Because the enmity isn't real, but, and yet their commitment to, to the, the weird, neither can live while the other survives of it all is really strange. It's really just like, well, it has to be you or me. Neither of us will like, what's weird is their insistence on their fates being bound together. That's yes. what it really is. It's yes. just like, we are not, neither of us will agree to go our separate way because of that thing that you said earlier of like, what we're actually arguing about, what the passion is actually about is our fates have to be connected and we will not sever them. You have to, like death has to. Yes, yes, yeah. Something has come between our love and we must find a resolution to the fact yes. that there is now something between us. Yes. Either by one of, and the only way, I mean, yeah, then Theseus kind of says the quiet part loud and is like, then one of you has to die. That's the only outcome. And then they agree because the actual knot that is too hard to untangle isn't, because if it was actually just about her, you know what I mean? It's like the, what it comes find from another is girl. Like, exactly. It's a, their unwillingness to leave each other is yes. what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you could just say, you could just say, okay, one of you will marry her and the other one's banished. Or again, you could say what he says, which is just go be banished in opposite directions and never see each other again. And they're which like, of no, course we, they won't do. Yeah. yeah. They're like, we cannot do that. No. It has to be, again, it's the, the outcome of this supposed heterosexual mm -hmm. romance. In fact, has to be decided between Palma Yes. And in a physical, yes. in a physical way and like by like a physical clash. And you know, what's interesting, something else that I think sort of suffuses this play because they constantly think they're going to die. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they, like from the beginning to the end, you know, it, one of the things that does feel genuinely Greek about it to me is the complete lack of fear of death. Yeah. And because there are places in Shakespeare where people like where death doesn't feel, um, I don't know that these young men's like willingness to be 
killed for love and be sort of immortally young, like is actually something that they talk about and are not afraid of. So like genuinely the the thing is like, I don't want to walk off in another direction and never see him again. I want to die beautifully by his hand. Well, and all these things about, you know, a wife lawfully may come between us. You want to die before you enter the part of life where you have to leave each other. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which is like the queer childhood thing. Yeah. All over again. Yeah. 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 And so that's pretty much it for act three, right? It's just sort of, we'll be, we'll be friends until then. And then act four is where we should probably talk about the jailer's daughter just for a minute. Yeah. Because, because so what, yeah, well, what's been happening with the jailer's daughter is originally she ran into the woods after Palamon, after she set Palamon free from prison. And she talks to the audience a whole ton because no one else is around. And she's terrified that Palamon's going to be eaten by wolves and that her father, the jailer, is going to get um, like hung by Theseus for freeing the prisoner, which doesn't happen. No one cares. But um, she's terrified that she's made a horrible mistake for a guy that doesn't love her. She runs off into the woods where she falls in with some incredibly gay Morris dancers who, by the way, earlier, the one thing I have to say from them in act three, because they don't matter at all, except for it's a schoolmaster who speaks some shitty Latin in a very kind of love's labor's lost way, who is like prancing around in the woods with all of those boy players from the beginning, frankly. And somebody comes in and he pays somebody and literally somebody hands somebody money in this Morris dancing sequence. And the guy goes, here's something to paint your pole with all. <laughs> so like gay for uh, miles, but they're yeah. literally just, they're prancing around in the woods. And um, she has been wandering around in the woods, like terrified and, and fearful for so long that she goes, she goes literally crazy. And what's happening is that when it's she gets intercepted, unlike yeah. in other plays, they do, I mean, they do this sometimes they do like make it clear. She hasn't eaten and she hasn't slept. Yeah. Like she's yeah, really mad, do. but she's also just tired and incredibly dehydrated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she's extremely hungry, but she's wandering around in the woods, super worried. And then basically she's like doing a light Ophelia she's she's like she she has a ton of language about flowers she no longer recognizes who people are and then she stumbles into this clearing with all these gay ass morris dancers doing a mayday dance and then they're like hey girl are you look crazy are you crazy and she's like yeah (laughs) and then they're like join our dance (laughs) and it's really interesting because i mean it's not true it's not I say a light Ophelia because it's not an Ophelia the play doesn't treat her with anything like that kind of gravity however her resolution in act five is really interesting so we'll talk about that in a minute but also like even en route to it it is still like heterosexuality she still fell in love with the wrong person who didn't Mm -hmm. love her and it still you know it's still the rule heterosexuality gets you killed or makes you insane yeah yeah I mean it's not going well for her (laughs) no it ends okay question mark we'll talk about it but like Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I think this is an I think act four is in a really fascinating way turns to the women and really is their half of what's been going on like Palamon has no idea this is even happening to the jailer's daughter he doesn't even know he did this to somebody I mean he didn't do it like he didn't know that his presence sort of caused this for somebody I'm sure he'd feel very bad but like it's just like it's all I mean, yeah, it's more of sort of the effects of love or the kind of consequences of love being born mm-hmm. by someone who's not even really like part of it. 
Exactly. And not aware of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, because that's the thing is, uh, the jailer's daughter is sort of doing to Palamon what Palamon is doing to Amelia. You know what I mean? It's the thing of like, everyone is falling in love with someone who barely knows they exist at the time that they fell in love. Yeah. So speaking of Amelia, we get some really interesting scenes with her in this act where she kind of sits and tries to pick. Yeah. Between Palamon and Arkite. And I think this is where we get she kind of breaks down their very different personalities and looks yeah. in a way that's quite interesting. And again, like unlike in so many of Shakespeare's plays, like rings true. Like she describes what they're like and you're like, oh yeah, that is what they're like. Yeah. Um, but she, it's just so interesting. It's like she kind of talks herself into each of them mm. in turn. And it just really speaking to contrast it to the way she described loving Flavina in that speech mm. where it was like, we loved because we did. There was no yeah. reason for it. It just happened. And yeah. now we see her making this very reasoned sort of like, oh, well, I can love him because this and this and this and this. Yeah. And these are the things that are good about him. Oh, but I could love the other one because of this and this and this and this. And these are the things that are good about him. And like, basically her conclusion is like, I don't care because I don't want either of them to die because of me. Exactly. Exactly. And the mm-hmm. threat of death has completely superseded any potential for genuine heterosexual attraction or affection. Entirely. And also it's like, like you said, completely in contrast to the like organic elemental sort of quality of her language about Flavina. It's like, she literally makes a pros and cons list Yeah. for the boys, you know, and she makes it super clear that what she's actually thinking about is this responsibility that was foisted on her that she totally didn't choose to participate in, which is you are the reason that one of these men is going to die. Yeah. And that, that just sort of like infects every thought she has about it. Yeah. And like, speak, like I said before, it's like Shakespeare doesn't let us lose track of that. Yes. He keeps reminding us that that is fundamentally what she's concerned about and like mm-hmm. what she doesn't want to be engaging with and is kind of yeah. distracting her from any possibility of feeling any other way about either of them besides just like, oh my God, but do I like, like him enough to let someone die for it? Right. And in both cases, the answer is no. Yeah. Like death is more impactful in her mind than love because she doesn't yes. love them. Yes. Oh, that's so brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that's the thing is like she can't choose because death means something to her. Love for these men does not. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yes. That's exactly it. That's yeah. Absolutely. And so that's so she can't choose. So what ends up happening is we go forward. So both of them are going to get some knights. <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And there's this weird thing where they're going to have, and this is relevant. Um, they're going (laughs) to basically wrestle and there's going to be like this pyramid set up and basically whoever like pins the other one against (sighs) the pyramid wins. And then the loser is killed. So it's not, I kept calling it a fight to the death. That's not Mm -hmm. really accurate. They're not trying to kill each other in the combat. They're just trying to pin the other one. Um, against a, a, against a pyramid (laughs) pyramid. And then I'm sorry, just to like sidebar it before we move into Act Five, where this happens. There's this incredible scene where uh, Pyrrhus is long gay speech. Yeah, Pyrrhus and Theseus ride in. They're like, "Bring in the knights! Bring in the knights! We really want to see them." And then the two of them start having this incredibly long conversation where they go back and forth discussing the knights mm-hmm. and how hot they are. Well, periodically, Amelia and Hippolyta interject to be like, "But aren't they gonna? Don't they have to die? Aren't some of them gonna get?" murdered today and Pyrrhus has some theses you're like haha yeah it's very sad but oh my god look at his armor literally they're out of their minds it's so intense so (laughs) funny the okay so here's I don't I think this is Pyrrhus I I I indiscriminately pulled a piece of text it could have been it's like 
it's so gay it's like at random any of it is this gay i think it's pirithus who says his arms are brawny lined with strong sinews to the shoulder piece gently they swell like women new conceived which speaks him prone to labor never fainting under the weight of arms stout-hearted still but when he stirs a tiger and they just go like person by person it's insane it's insane yeah that's what happens yeah it's insane so yeah yeah, I mean that's pretty much like I mean I just had to highlight that because it's just like Shakespeare being like by the way don't forget these two yeah no it's insane I mean they're both just off to the side like you said being and you know it's interesting because the women are like you said it's actually important that in act four the women are the ones who are concerned with death the men are Mm -hmm. not concerned at all because I think in the universe of this play it's a the physicality the erotics of combat like we talked about but also the fact that like part of the gayness of men has to do with the drama of the stakes. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's sort of the thing of like, like part of what the romance is, I think, is the sense of like, if I can't, if I can't love the way I want to love, then at least you'll kill me. Like, I don't know. There's something. Yeah, it's the conquest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the death and the sex are connected for the men. Well, yeah, I think again, like this is sort of what we get with Helen Hotspur. It's the like, yes. I'd rather kind of die in your arms yeah. than live, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, yeah. that is, it's, yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right. It's just a piece of the like, well, since combat is the space where this becomes permitted, yeah. death is inevitably the culmination and the sort of final union. It's sort of the consummation. Yeah. yeah it's the kind exactly. of like, and the thing is like, in terms of like, fate and destiny and the storytelling of their love it's the thing of like that's the yeah like inevitably death is a consequence and it's also like the most profoundly intimate thing that you can share whereas I think for women it's I mean to look back at like Titania it's like death in it's always like we always talk like she says uh Amelia has lines about how like she died in her bed like I think I just picture this mm-hmm. association with like death in a bed and death in childbirth, a sort of yes. death as a result of heterosexuality for women. It's like yeah. a thing that is pulling you away from each other. Mm. A thing that you are sort mm. of forced to experience and contemplate separately. Yes. Unlike men who get to go into war and die together. And do it together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very intense. And so then this whole, like you said at the beginning, the whole thing is actually quite simple. It ends up exactly where it began in the, in, you know, act five is about the squaring off of this, um, of this combat. And And we go super stylized again. Yes. Yes. And well, and also through a whole bunch of it, Shakespeare makes the really amazing choice to not show the combat, but to show us Amelia not watching. Yeah. But first, I mean, before we get into that, though, yeah. I think we need to talk about, well, first, sidebar. So the way things get resolved with the jailer's daughter, as I alluded oh, to yeah. before, is her, they just, a doctor's like, tells her boyfriend, pretend to be Palamon, and then have sex with her. And her dad's like, excuse me, what? And the doctor's like, no, no, they must have sex. They um, have to. It'll, it'll cure her. Yeah. So there's some questions about consent that get raised in that (laughs) I pulled a tiny bit of that text because genuinely it's actually like speaking of things that feel naturalistic it's actually so tender it's heartbreaking um the the 
the wooer is what he's called and you know the tag he's just an unnamed wooer um so the scene is just between wooer doctor and daughter which is really interesting but the wooer uh you know is like let's get married let's go in and like hang out and then the daughter explicitly is the one who asks about about the sex of it all the jailer's daughter says and then we'll sleep together And the doctor says to the wooer, take her offer. And the wooer says, yes, Mary, will we? And she says, but you shall not hurt me. And he says, I will not, sweet. And she says, if you do love, I'll cry. I mean, like, that's insane. It's, yeah. And like, I was sort of trying to think about how to like integrate that into the broader conversation. Yeah. And I feel like it sort of sets up this idea and we can talk about whether it gets fulfilled of like, is there hope that actually you can take your illusion of love and make mm. it real? Like maybe can you content yourself with the second best that you've ended up with? Well, and I think, I think what's weird and, and what's weird about it with, with the heterosexuality of it all is like, yes, but, but only if you don't know that you have the wrong person. She doesn't know, yeah. you know, I mean, it's like, but it's like the hope is she will, like it's supposed to cure her, right? Like they keep yeah. saying like, this won't be forever. That's not the point. Like gradually you'll, you know, show, this will snap her out of it. I mean, and this mm. connects as well to like the whole idea of like green sickness and the idea that like young women, because they were virgins were like prone yeah. to this like weird, I mean, like anemia slash insanity. And the solution was to have sex. Um, so there's some <laughs> sort of like weird folk medicine happening. Um, yeah, there is. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's true. It's the idea of like, what does it take to enter into the illusion that you've been trying to build and find happiness there? Yeah. And I'm just like, I'm just sort of obsessed with a play that tonally will, would put that conversation. Yeah. yeah. You shall not hurt me. I will not. If you do love, I'll cry. That's the resolution of the sweet heterosexual kid who ran into the woods for the wrong reasons and lost her mind. And then in the same act, we finally build to this really epic, you know, confrontation between these men who love each other in this really physical way. And it's like, what does it mean for a play to contain both of those things? Because the thing is like, like we said, this is a more explicitly queer play than any that we've talked about so far. And I think like that tiny little exchange demonstrates, it's also a play that's really explicitly concerned about heterosexuality. Yeah, absolutely. Even the sort of happy subplot, I mean, kind of is yeah yeah this kid this kid's not okay it's just aware of the damage it's aware of the fear and the pain yes exactly and and as you say yeah like the wooer's response is tender and he's trying to help her in this weird misguided way right but But she's been yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but she's been she's been hurt you know and it's a really interesting I don't know I I felt like even though it's such a brief scene I felt like that exchange takes her pain seriously in a way Mm -hmm. that is really shocking to see in in a in a thing of this period you know I don't know it's like no I agree sort of the most Ophelia she ever gets you know but even more so I don't know it's intense yeah Mm -hmm. I don't know that like the sort of realities of Ophelia's pain are taken they're all sort of so heavily cloaked in the madness it kind of you get distracted from it there's something in the simplicity of that exchange where it's like it can't mean anything other than what it means no and well and also I think like the critical thing is like the sort of tragedy of Ophelia is that by the time she gets to this place no one will hear her everyone is like she has no one to speak to and this kid ends up in an okay place but it's still like her lost quality is so similar yeah yeah absolutely yeah um yeah but then (laughs) uh, things are weird over on the other side as well Uh, so weird 
so Palamon and Archite meet for their sort of final farewells. And I have to read uh, some lines from Archite. You got to do it. You got to do it. I am in labor to push your name, your ancient love, our kindred out of my memory and in the selfsame place to seat something I would confound. There it is. Basically, like I am trying again, like you are the father of my child. I am, you know, you are the mother of my heir. Like we are everything to each other. And also I am working so hard to hate you and turn you in my mind into something I'm willing to kill. And also the fact that you said mother just there. I mean, literally the fact that the language is I'm in labor to oh, yeah. push to push your name, your ancient love out of my memory. I mean, like I'm literally trying to give like to give birth to to expel your name out of my body. And but it's also again the thing I said before, we're each other's husband and wife, we're each other's heirs. Yes. I'm trying to birth you. Yes, yes, exactly. And then and then like and then they they do have a little goodbye hug. Yeah, and then they have a goodbye hug, and like, I I have some. There's some other text that I that I thought is is the little thing that Emily that they call her Emily sometimes is the thing that Amelia says before they fight. She has to contrast with how how hot that language is that Archite just you know just had. Amelia says, "This is my last of Vestal office. I am bride habited, but maiden hearted." Yeah, well, so there's, again, speaking of, I said before, it goes back into like this incredibly ceremonial place and we get the, um, I think it's Archite, Palamon, and um, Amelia in that order. Mm -hmm. I should check if it's Archite or Palamon first. Pray sequentially to Mars, Venus, and Diana. And they all have these long speeches. Yes, um, long speeches. Explaining like what they're doing, what they're here for, what they hope for and asking for a sign. And they all receive a sign at the end. And um, that is in the speech where Amelia is praying Mm -hmm. to Diana, which is why she's talking about it's her final vestal. Right. You know, her last act as a virgin praying to the virgin goddess. Right. But I mean, speaking of like, you know, a lesbian who's going to have to marry one of these men when the other dies. I mean, the sentence I am bride habited, but maiden hearted is so So sort of striking. Yeah. But yeah, it's I mean, and again, I think this is where like you have to set up the mysticism that exists in this play for this culmination to like work in any way. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it, the play is so good about that because it gives you that whole first scene. And then I think that you can weave it through and then it comes back sort of full force here at the ending. It's really like a sort of bookend, like the culture Mm -hmm. of it is very clear Yeah, and yeah, it's really beautiful. And so, and so, so, yeah, then, yeah. But so then we get into, uh, we've alluded this before, but like the fascinating structural choice, it's like, we don't, see the fight and this is again Theseus is like you have to watch you owe it to them this is about you and Amelia is like I don't care I'm not going to and so she doesn't and instead we get we hear off stage and we get people running in to report back to her what's happening and it gets narrated to her while it all happens off stage which is insane yeah yeah. and again I think just reinforces like Amelia's a good role (laughs) she's a great role amazing amazing and then also like so what happens is at first it seems like Palamon is winning yeah. And then it seems like Archite is winning. Yeah. And then he does win. Yes. And can I read? Yes. So again, he calls her Emily. Um, Archite comes in and says, Emily, to buy you, I have lost what's dearest to me. Save what is bought. And yet I purchase cheaply as I do rate your value. Incredible. <laughs> Just like 
you sort of feel him back, like trying to find the way to phrase it, having in the first sentence basically said, I've lost, I've lost. To buy you, I have lost what's dearest to me. Incredible. I mean, except you, obviously. I think you're great. (laughs) Except you. I accept you. So it's fine. But, but, and so then what happens in a surprise twist, right? Yep. (laughs) So Palamon is like, okay, I guess it's time to die. Yeah. And what happens as he is about to go die? Uh, not just Wait, him, actually, all- sorry. I have one more, yeah. one more yeah. thing that Amelia's response, sorry, I oh. mixed up in my notes, but it's, this is Amelia's response when this is all happening and they're like, our kite wins, Palamon's going to die. Amelia says, is this winning? Oh, all you <laughs> heavenly powers, where is your mercy? But that your wills have said it must be so and charge me live to comfort this unfriended, this miserable prince that cuts away a life more worthy from him than all women. I should and would die too. Okay. Like- so basically it, her position at the end is, well, his life is over, but I guess I can live to try and comfort him at this great loss that he has suffered. And that'll be, and, and the thing is, I'm so glad you didn't let us skip over that because the thing is the most emotion she ever feels for him is empathy, compassion. He has, he is now losing what she has lost, Yes, which is a same sex partner. I will live to comfort this unfriended. Yes, because that's the thing. That's the thing she understands. What it's about to be is a marriage of two people who have lost the person they actually love. And again, as she did with Flavina and men, she says a life more worthy than all women. Yes. It's like she explicitly, repeatedly views these Mm -hmm. things in terms of gender. Yes. Not like about personality. It's not, it's about. It's insane. It's insane. And so like her recognition of his loss is the thing that strikes me so much in that. So off she goes, she's going to marry Archite. Palamon is about to die. He and all of his knights who also have to die because this is an honor situation are all being hilarious. Um, Them's the breaks. Uh, So all the hot knights in Palamon are being led away to be killed because that was the arrangement. And then. And T, I just have to note that. Oh no, keep going. No, no, you go. You go. No, no, no. I'm jumping the gun. (laughs) I know I'm jumping the gun. It's too soon. (laughs) Okay. Um, uh, We were doing the armor thing there. No, you, no, you No, you, no, you. No, no, you. Um, What happens is some folks rush in at the last minute to spare Palamon and the knights because of the incredibly unfortunate news that in the last five seconds, Arkite has been crushed by a horse. He fell off his horse and died. Yeah, and a messenger, well, he fell off a hor- off his horse and has been crushed. He still has some some breath left for language for a brief <laughs> moment. Right, uh, because we have to get we have to get our tearful goodbye. So a messenger comes in and gives a redonkulously long and weirdly sensuous and kind of stalling rendition of events where Palamon's like, what happened? And a messenger's like, okay, it was crazy. Our kite was on his horse and the horse reared up and he fell down so his legs were above his head. And then the horse fell backward onto him. And everybody's like, what the fuck? And then they carry our kite's crushed body back on stage where Palamon is like, oh my God. And then they have 
a final scene where Arkite with his final breaths is like, I've loved you forever. Take care of her. Bye. Yeah, this is the line I was about to read because I forgot the context in which you said it. I mean, Palamon comes up to him and says, I am Palamon, one that yet loves thee dying. Yeah. Yes. And he says, he says also in that scene, the text I pulled is Palamon says, oh, cousin, that we should things desire, which do cost us the loss of our desire that not could buy dear love, but loss of dear love. Yep. Uh, Yeah, basically. And then he dies in his arms. Yeah. And Arkite's like, since I have to go, I guess you two should get married. Yeah. And Presumably Amelia's fine with this because this was already the deal she made. She was already yeah. like, yeah, I'm going to be comforting. Mary. Yeah, I'll be the comfort companion to this sad, mm-hmm. bereaved gay. Mm-hmm. Just swap. And it doesn't matter which one because they're interchangeable. And that's that's it. And then there's a, oh my God. I also, I also took down a little piece of Theseus's final stuff because of course, like Theseus, Pirithus, Apollo, everyone is like, wow, what a crazy turn of events. And as they're kind of solemnizing the sad gay, you know, situation at the end, Theseus says, the gods, my justice take from my hand and they themselves become the executioners. Lead your lady off and call your lovers from the stage of death whom I adopt my friends. And so his sort of final act is like, thank God we didn't kill any of your hot nights. Everyone's pardoned. <laughs> Let's go mourn Archite and you can marry Amelia. It's wild because yeah, like Theseus kind of tries to frame it in the end is like, well, it turns out he admits that you fell in love with her first. So this is justice. But then when they <sighs> actually get face to face and are talking, that is not what they're talking about. They just talk about how much they love each other. Yeah. I'm like, One that loves the dying is just breathtaking. But it's that thing that we were saying of like, it's a the destiny all along was yeah. like, this has been about our love. What I And the thing they said back in prison before they even fell in love with Amelia, that striking thing of like, if we were apart, I would have to marry someone else. And then when I was dying, nobody, nobody here, like someone besides you would have to hold me and close my eyes. And the thing is, the fact that that is said before they, before Amelia enters the play and then mm-hmm. the, they, it ends with Arkite dying in Palamon's arms. And obviously you would have to do the beautiful thing of like, you know, they're- Closing the eyes. Of course, yeah, it would be so beautiful. I mean, it is, yeah. It's like, who gets the sadder ending, really? The one who gets to die in his lover's arms or the one who someday will die alone? Yeah. And I think this is why both of our brains sort of shorted out when we started trying to think about like, is this a tragedy? like it is just like what i mean it ends with the marriage obviously it ends solemnly but it certainly does not end with any sense that amelia mm-hmm. and palamon will be happy at all ever um <laughs> it ends with a well like it's so interesting it ends with a lavender marriage it ends with a sense of um it's brilliant in a way because like you said it's like it ends with Amelia's understanding the most she can do is an understanding of loss and it turns out to be applied to the other one yeah and yeah I mean it's I I don't know I think it is a tragedy it's yeah I mean it is it is it ends with a marriage (laughs) but like the saddest marriage ever and I think there's just something like to return to the thing we said before about like 
picturing this and two gentlemen of Verona as sort of bookends to this question blew my mind <laughs> like not to get too sort of like imagining Shakespeare's life about it but like the yeah. idea, like it just feels like he's like I've pondered this question for 20 years and I'm throwing up my hands here's the solution I found what if yeah. two gays get married because they're both bereaved Yes. Yes. And I think you're in a way like the person who has the most satisfactory ending is Archite who gets to die young and beautiful in Palamon's arms. And like, that's what they wanted. You know yeah. what I mean? And like, it's in a way it has a lot of the, the, the mingled energies of life and of sex and death that the romances have to return to that. Yeah. But the ways in which it differs really is that it feels more tragic to me than because the thing the thing that characterizes winter's tale and pericles and and you know cymbeline to like tempest is the sense of loss but then restitution it's the magic grace space in which yeah. like well when what the gods if, come in they help these gods yeah, don't help that's right and and the world is still fundamentally a place in which this love um is not going to exist for a lifetime. Yeah. And that can't be interceded by, yeah. by, by any force. And it's, it's, it's really, it's really, really interesting. I mean, like it's tragic, but it's gay, 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 and actually gay, like not, you know, I mean, it's just yeah. like to the bone layer upon layer gay. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in all our episodes so far, I've more or less managed to convince myself that our arguments are like basically legit, that this is just <laughs> like, there is no other yeah. way I can envision reading or performing this play. And also no other explanation for why it has been so underperformed and underrated, yes. except that it has been impossible through most of history to perform this play the way it would need to be performed. Which... In the year of our Lord, 2022, I think is perhaps, I mean, a genuinely, genuinely, I would be so, I recently saw, I recently saw two men kiss in a professional Shakespeare production for the first time in my life. And I found it so interesting. And that it was like, you know, it was a complicated play that we'll talk about at some point soon, but, but to see this done the way that I think it's actually asking to be done would be, I think, genuinely shocking to like the system. I think it would be mm -hmm. genuinely amazing. Yeah. I think it could be a really radical, yeah. beautiful production. Yeah. In, and just by being as faithful as possible to the play itself. And by faithful, we mean gay. We mean gay, baby. Oh, we've gone on for a while, um, but I think it was worth it. Uh, so usually what we do every week at the end of our episode is live and in person on the air. We uh, choose what play we are going to discuss in two weeks time. Um, and I have a suggestion that I think is the play you're alluding to. I, think I have both a suggestion the same too, and I think play. it was that, yeah. Um, to my great sorrow and regret, yeah. The Merchant of Venice. The Merchant of Venice. It's time. It's time. We'll explain at the beginning of next week. Um, but yeah, that's, I think, the place to go from here. Well, uh, thank you for taking this ride with us. At least it's been gay. Happy birthday and death day, Will. Gay, gay, gay. Gay, gay, gay.
um, real quick, Instagram. Oh, it's uh, this Shakespeare is gay. <laughs> <laughs> we remember Twitter. This Shakes is gay. That's S H A X. Leave a rating. Leave a review. Mm-hmm. See you in a couple weeks. Okay. Bye.